Well, good morning again, everybody. Um, this morning, as we start off, I want to talk to you a little bit about good and evil. How do we understand and define those two terms? I think for the most part we can understand them in the cosmic, eternal sense, but how do we do understand that from day-to-day life? You know, once you start down this path, it can be a pretty complex train of thought that you can go down because there's varying levels of importance and understanding and meaning that impact our daily lives. So humor me a little bit as I just ask some probing questions to get our minds flowing a little bit this morning. Would you say that there is good and evil around you that you have witnessed or maybe that you have participated in in your life? Is there a difference in understanding the definition of good and evil apart from salvation? So what I mean by this is can we do good acts and have that goodness separated from our understanding of salvation? You know, this is the complexity that gets added in because we understand that God is good. He is the definition of goodness. He is the standard bearer. But then we can do things that are called good. For instance, the Buckeyes had a good game yesterday. And Iowa's defense is really good. So we call these things good. You know, can, can we call helping someone a good deed without having a disclaimer about their salvation? Like, just because you did that one good act doesn't mean you're saved. Do we understand goodness and evil separated from that? Because many times when we have conversations with people, We understand how no one is good, and we can equate that positional standing then to works that we see around us. The trouble always comes in when we try to use goodness as a marker for salvation. I believe that we all understand that, and we rightly draw that line. But sometimes, people can do good things, and it can draw in confusion for us in terms of our understanding, in terms of how we are to respond as Christians. You know, as I was writing these opening questions, I can feel myself squirm a bit. Uh, understanding my own understandings of, and definitions of goodness, theological importances, um, am I just trying to justify different things? Am I using circular logic or different fallacies to truly understand goodness and how that is to be lived out in my own life. Dennis Prager commented, if there is no God, the labels, good and evil, are merely opinions. They are substitutes for I like it and I don't like it. They are not objective realities. And I ask questions like this today because we do deal with good and evil all around us. And how things are defined can be different for each person. And I want to dive into that over the next few weeks. You know, Paul, he writes about this type of struggle between good and evil in a cosmic sense and also in a practical sense in the book of Romans. Um, Short of going through the entire book in one Sunday for the context, 
We're just going to focus on one passage of Scripture over the next three weeks to dive deeper into this subject a little bit. You know, Paul, he, he gives very strong doctrinal instruction to the church, meaning this is how you are supposed to believe. And then near the end of the book, he lays out different applications in terms of, okay, here's what you believe, great, now this is how you live it out. This is who we are supposed to be about. And you know, as we're going through this series of instructions to the early church, what they were to be about, I think it's very important for us to understand the, the good and evil concept, the dichotomy that we see in this world and how to approach it. So we're going to dive deeper um, in a passage of Scripture in Romans 12. If you have your Bibles, you can join me today. And for the most part, we're going to stick in Romans. There's a couple other passages outside that are quick. Um, But Romans 12, and we're going to read verses 9 through 21 today. That's going to be the section that we cover over the next three weeks. But we're going to just break it up into some chunks and handle some things a little bit more deeper. Beginning in verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, I just I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds today, that you would help us to address uh, some of these things that are going on in our lives, and that we would be drawn closer to you each and every day, Lord. I pray that your word uh, would just have such a good cleansing effect on us today. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so today we're going to cover the first five verses of this segment. Um, and within this, you can obviously see it, they're very concise, uh, straight-to-the-point uh, collections uh, of ethical exhortations to the body, different instructions that he is giving the body. Contextually, you look around this passage, and it follows the gifts passage that we went over a few months back. So there's going to be a connection to there. You know, beginning up in verse 7, the verbs become participles. And what that means is it can serve as an imperative when we're reading them. It's an implied understanding. Now, not all of the phrases, not all of the clauses that are here have verbs in them. 
which is interesting. It's just nouns within them. So this brings in a decision-making aspect on the believer's heart because there's no verb there to say that this is a command. Instead, it's this is how things should be. Are you going to live in this way? And within these five verses, there are 13 different exhortations. For each of these 13, you could provide a topical sermon on the points that are being made, which gives us an opportunity to say, hey, you know what? Let's dive a little bit deeper this week. Let's go into some of these terms that maybe I'm struggling with, and let's look at what the Bible says. Um, Paul is mentioning all of these things as exhortations because they are kind of a basic understanding for the Christians to be living in this way. Uh, Maybe your subtitle in your Bible says the marks of true Christians or the marks of what a Christian should be about. Okay, so these types of things should be exemplified in their lives. Now this first section kind of deals with how we are showing love to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, while dealing with good and evil. The following section is gonna widen out to non-believers as well, with the overall summary of this passage is that a believer is required to make a decision about good and evil. And as Paul is writing, he is imploring them that they are to come down firmly on the side of good. Now, if we're defining good as God is good, what that means is it's an understanding of walking in his will following in the steps of his goodness, understanding that since he is good, we want to be like him and define goodness through him, through his words, through his actions that we see in scripture. And it's kind of the basis and summary of what we're gonna be going over as we deal with different things that are going on in this world. Now these short phrases and clauses here start off with saying, let your love be genuine meaning let it be sincere. Now there's not a verb in this clause. So he's imploring the reader to let their love be genuine. If you're gonna be coming down on the side of good, this is what you should be about because love conquers evil. This is the agape form of love. This is God's love, the love that came down in the form of Christ who died on the cross to defeat death. You think about this type of love, it is been on display throughout all of Paul's writing. He continually puts love in there to start off lists. And here's another list being started, being, um, beginning with love. It is a sincere, genuine love without pretense, meaning it's, it's not false, it's not deceiving, it's not manipulative. It looks to the other person. This type of love comes from a renewed heart, one that understands the experience of salvation that's been given, the love that has been received that was not earned, the grace that has been received. 1 Peter 1, verses verses 22 and 23 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Since you have been born again, you understand this genuine love. You understand this agape love. So let your love be genuine. The next two kind of go together. And really, there's a lot of couplets and a triplet within this series. And and they kind of, the exhortations just kind of flow into each other. And you're gonna be able to see a lot of connections. 
Some of those connections I'm not gonna necessarily talk about, but they could be connections in your mind based on what you're going through and how the Spirit's working in your life. So kind of be open to that as we go through this list. But he says, abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. Now this is kind of the basis for this deep dive into this topic as we go through this passage. As a believer, do we make a commitment to detest things that are evil, to hate what is evil as the Lord does? Or do we entertain it? I would say that this is kind of lived out subjectively in our lives. Each person is a little bit different uh, in terms of a matter of their own heart and what that looks like. I think that for the most part, uh, the same way that we understand good and evil on the cosmic level, we can agree of the big, huge atrocities as being evil, as being against God. I think everybody is on agreement with that. But when it crosses a line into our own ignorance, maybe what we find pleasurable but others don't and we find some disagreements, we might call them bad but evil. You see a little bit more gray area in that. And you begin to test the definitions of what it means for something to be called evil. You know, there's gonna be times in our lives where we're not gonna be aligned uh, to the will of God in a way that would call certain things evil the way that we should. I think we've all played those types of games based on the season that we're walking on, based on the sin struggles that we might be having that just kind of allow us to continue to partake in that lifestyle. And perhaps we're not to that level of maturity yet. Like I said, sometimes in our own ignorance, some of these forms of evil could also remain attractive to us in the flesh as we're being, attempt, as we're being tempted. Sometimes we can be legalistic with what we call evil in terms of something that others might disagree with. Now, this is just an example that I know from the past um, and I'm, I do apologize if it's offensive to you because you were brought up in this tradition. But there was definitely a period of time, and there's probably still churches today that say, if you play cards, it is a sin. It is something that is evil. If you don't wear a certain length of denim skirt as a woman, you're not dress, dressing modestly and you are in sin. We have these types of things, even with the church, that we can call evil that really might not necessarily be evil. And we can get legalistic about those things. You know, when we think about evil, when we think about it in the cosmic sense, we have to hold on to what is the will of God, what does the word of God say? And if it's something that is against that, it would be a form of evil. Even if it's something that you know, perfect example, I'm wearing a Ohio State Buckeye shirt. How many different idols do we create in this world? Well, I mean, it's just a game, it's fun, but it can become an idol, which goes against the law of God, which would be sin, which would be evil. So we have to understand how we are approaching the things that we like in life versus what maybe everybody else is doing. Because many times we build ourselves up or tear others down so we look better. But our standard is always God. That's what we have to come back to. We have to come back to what the word of God says. And over time, 
through the renewing of our minds, God can change our heart's desires. You know, over time, it's a patient attitude that might not be as comforting as you would hope for. Because if you are one of those that are continually stuck in a sin pattern and you just want it to be done, you don't want to struggle through this anymore with the temptations. You just want the behaviors to change and the evil to be gone. But you know, it's through that patience, it's through that time of when we're being obedient to what God has commanded that we can see those victories. And as we see those victories, we place a deeper, more complete hope and trust in God because we've experienced his goodness. We're going to him for his goodness rather than to ourselves and defining it how we would want to define it. What helps in detesting evil is to do the opposite. Cling to what is good. Hold fast to what is good. So we need to hate what is evil and hold tightly to what is good. And with both of these exhortations, it's not a single action, but it's a continued lifestyle. It's a quality of life. You know, if we can hate evil rather than entertain it, if we can embrace good rather than treat it as this ideal or this platitude or this cliche, then the, the casual, the, the nominal Christianity that we live can begin to wear off because we're then living in the goodness of God. We're experiencing what that looks like rather than lukewarmness and complacency. You know, in many of the conversations I have, a lot of us struggle with complacency. A lot of us struggle with this attitude of just getting by. Where there isn't this passion, where there isn't this zeal for the Lord. It's just, yep, another, another week. Just getting by. A lot of work. A lot of things to do. But when Paul is describing Christianity, when he is laying this out for the early church, you can see a vibrancy and a passion that's gonna settle for nothing short of the fullness of God. You know, when you think of the fullness of God, would you describe that's how you're living? Like, are we living in the fullness of what's been revealed and what we understand of God? Or is God just one of those compartments that we do on Sundays? You know, is he, is he a major part, a motivation in our life? You know, Paul, he continually describes walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. He shows that this is a journey, that this is a process, that we continue to persevere and press forward into his goodness. He is what we are clinging to. Even if we are attacked by the enemy, even if there's evil all around us, you know, the flesh is going to continue to tempt us. Satan is going to try to, to divide us. And the world and the culture is going to continue to go further and further away from God. Are we clinging to him and his goodness amidst all of these evil things? You know, part of clinging to good is making sure that we're devoted to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're sharing a brotherly love and affection with them. This is a familial type of love, um, again, no verb in this clause, but there's this sense of familial belonging that would transcend normal family ties. And again, you think of Jesus' teaching in terms of counting the cost, what it means to hate your father and mother. 
Um, you think of what we talked about last week in terms of the context of what's going on in the culture, where Christians, especially in Jerusalem, were being shunned by their family members, where they're not being loved by their family members. All of that type of tie is being broken because they're coming to Christ. And Christ is restoring that relationship through the bonds of familial love in the body. So we need to be about that. You know, and when you think about families, there is so much opportunity for trouble to come in. And it happens for multiple reasons. And we've talked about some of them in the past. You know, families you spend the most time with, they know how to push your buttons. Families and communication sometimes suffer greatly when you have to come together to make strong decisions. There's opportunities for evil to just grow within that family. It's easy to give in to offenses based on our own perceptions of right and wrong, good and evil, and how we might be slighted by others, where we might be insisting on our own rights and privileges rather than looking to the needs of one another. You know, when there is brotherly love present, however, it makes it difficult for evil to triumph in that way in those types of situations. So what does it look like to love one another in a brotherly way? Continuing on to that thought, Paul then says to outdo one another in showing honor. What is the honor and how do we show it? Webster, in the 1800s, defined honor as to have esteem, dignity, exalted ranks and places like a judge is treated as your honor. It is reverence, venerating and submission, nobleness, or a form of worship. It is treating each other with respect and dignity. And you are outdoing each other in recognizing each other, where you're truly seeing each other and you're building them up as a body, where you're giving them the preference over yourself. Similar to the conversations that we've talked about in terms of humility, having a humble heart, having a servant's heart. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And I think with the last two exhortations that he gives, Paul's addressing evil that can come from disunity evil that can come from selfishness in, in a congregation, but also in a believer's life. You know, if there's not a brotherly love or respect being shown, it allows more room for evil to be done. So as he's putting this challenge forward to outdo one another, it's a mutual honor, honoring, one of mutual respect that can build up the individual and eventually build up the body as well. The next two are also two that go together. First part, do not be slothful in zeal. So don't be lazy in your passionate pursuits. Um, in this case, I think your zeal, the object of that is Christ as a believer. Um, he's kind of the assumed object for the zeal. You know, zeal for God is something that Christians should be marked by and have as their identity instead of laziness, instead of complacency, instead of just getting by. And coupled with that, he says, you are to be fervent in spirit. You know, I've always translated or understood fervency as eagerness, as zeal. But 
interestingly, according to Webster, he says, it is boiling hot. That is the old definition for fervency. So being boiling hot in your spirit. Again, he is describing this attitude about not being lukewarm. Uh, understanding that as we struggle in our walks with complacency, with just getting by, that there could be a lack of zeal, a lack of passion, a lack of heat for the Lord. And Paul is instructing the early church to be zealous for God, that their passions should be for Jesus. You, know, you think about the passions that you have in everyday life. Not that they're bad, but they're passions. What motivates you? What gets you excited? What, what makes you just, just ready to go? And that can be a good thing because you can also give praise to God for those passions. But how do you compare the mentality that you have for that to your love for Christ? Is it greater? Is it less? Is it equal? You know, it goes back to that tiered system thing where Christ should be the top and then your family, then your job, then your hobbies, where everything flows from Christ versus looking to the world for pleasure, looking to the world for entertainment, and then just sprinkling Christ in here and there. Our zeal and our passion needs to be for Christ. Next, he talks about serving the Lord as a mark for Christians. Obviously, how we go about service is different from person to person. I think this particular exhortation is connected to the gifts passage up above. Um, you know, Christians will use their gifts in order to serve the Lord. As a church, as an organization, you provide ministry opportunities. You provide ways for people to be able to serve. Um, but service doesn't have to happen in this body. It happens everywhere in terms of our neighborhoods, in terms of our workplaces, in terms of helping with other organizations. You think of a Sure Women's Center, you think of Open Door, you think of um, the Good News program that's going on. There's many different ways in which we can serve. Paul is making mention of this again because you know, we shouldn't be giving in to this temptation of not serving based on where our standing is. You know, circumstances always change in our lives. I know sometimes, especially if you, if you move to different churches, it's tough to get plugged in sometimes or know how to serve. It's tough to know where you can go to serve in different ways. Sometimes you want to be invited to serve. For me, I am called into this profession, but I've always treated it as something that you just don't retire from. I mean, I might not always be in a full-time ministry position, but I will always be serving the Lord. This just happens to be where God has called me to serve at this particular season. You know, so that even if you retire, even if you're a senior saint and think, well, I've put in my years. I mean, we talked about it this morning. Abraham was 100 having kids, and I don't think anybody here is 100, so there's still plenty that we can do. Even if we think that we're older, even if we think that there's nothing that we can help out with, the Lord is always gracious and will show us different ways that we can serve. And it's through that service that we recognize Jesus is our Lord and we obey what he calls us to do. We also recognize who we are as his servant. So it's important to, to be able to understand a servant's heart no matter your age, no matter, no matter your capabilities. 
It's that type of humble attitude that helps us to understand and see what is good and what is evil around us. And we serve because we're rejoicing in our hope. Do you have a memory or a moment from your past that whenever you think about it, it makes you laugh or it makes you smile? Or maybe the opposite. Do you have a memory that makes you angry or makes you want to cry? Rejoicing in hope. We must never lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ. We must never lose sight of the hope that we have in our Savior because it carries us on through our trials and hardships. It carries us through those times of drought. It carries us through those times of just getting by. Our hope is in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and our connection to him is in that identity. We cling to that. Now, it can be challenged because we have enemies and we have evil around us. You know, as easy as we have the different memories that can make us angry or fill us with laughter, we're going to face trials and tribulations in this life to try to shake our faith. Paul says, be patient through those tribulations. Patience is not automatic. I mean, we would love, I would love, a life free of trials and tribulations, of not having to go through different forms of suffering. But faith that is not tested, can you call that faith at all? There's another saying that says that faith is not tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And I liken this to Jesus' teaching in John 10 about the hired hands who at the sight of the wolf, at the sight of trouble and tribulation, flee. They do not protect the flock. Our faith can be great when everything is going good. Our faith can be great when everything is is running smoothly and there's no complications in life. But how do we understand faith when hardship comes? Do we patiently continue to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ? A Christian must display patience and understand who they are in Christ because there is evil all around us. A response that I oftentimes hear from non-believers in this world is, how can I believe in God when there is so much evil, suffering, and death in this world? You know, we have to understand the mix between good and evil. We have to understand the balance between that. You see, Christ is in us, in Christ is in this world through us as we are being a light, as we are being hope to those around us, as we rejoice in the hope that we have and understanding the forgiveness that we have received. But there's still so much lostness, so much hurt in this broken world. And if I am overly concerned with one over the other, I can, get, I can go down on healthy tracks. You know, if I continue to look at the suffering and the miserableness and the brokenness and the lostness, it can make my heart depressed. It can make my soul downcast. Whereas if I'm just so far into how everything is hopeful and there's nothing but rejoicing, I'm downplaying the suffering that is going on for people around me. It goes back to the platitude things that I talked about before. You know, do we, do we come up to somebody to give them encouragement 
saying, you know, you should be rejoicing even though you just lost your child because Christ is king. While that's true, that's not exactly what that person needs to hear at that time. It may be, it may not be. But I think that you, you can understand the type of saying when I'm saying that. You know, sometimes we need to take a lesson from Job's friends and just sit in silence for seven days rather than give platitudes, making people be happy through their suffering. We can remind people of the goodness of God. But when a person is going through intense suffering, they can't always see that. And it's hard to go through those things. One thing that we need to do, though, is to connect them back to the Lord, to have that healthy understanding of the tribulations that we all face. And to do that, Christians need to be devoted to prayer. Prayer is one of our greatest tools and resources. It's different than just saying a prayer for before dinner, before you go to bed, or if you need something. It is a devotion to communicating with God. It's consistent, it's constant, continually pursuing the Father. And it needs to be a high priority in our life. At the end of this letter in chapter 15, beginning in verse 30, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Paul is laying out this wonderful opportunity to intercede for one another in prayer by asking for those in Rome to pray for him for what he is going through. And he's calling on every believer to be devoted in prayer. Now with these last three exhortations, we're gonna find a repetition in Paul's writing. If you could turn back to chapter eight. In chapter eight, verse 24, is where I'm gonna start. We see this exact same progression laid out. The progression of rejoicing in the hope that you have Um, patience through tribulations, and constantly being in prayer. Beginning in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now repetition like this happens all of the time in Scripture. It allows us to hear teachings, principles over and over again, spurring us in our understanding. And when we see repetition, we have to pay attention because it's an important thing that is being conveyed. You think about the different lists that we've already been going over in this series. These are all in different letters, but being repeated. Perhaps it's important for us to pay attention to. 
You know, when we recognize that we all have struggles, that we all have weaknesses, that we're all still having our minds renewed and being conformed into the image of Christ, we recognize how our shortcomings um, can deter us, but we do not get complacent with them. They do not become an excuse for us to continue sinning so that God's grace may abound all the more. Again, Paul in two places in Romans talks against that. We are instead to detest evil, rejoicing in the hope that we have, being patient through our, our tribulations, through our sufferings, and to be constant in our prayers. The final two exhortations in this section, contributing to the needs of the saints and pursuing hospitality, back in chapter 12. Contributing to others is generosity. It's benevolence. It's looking to others' needs over your own. It's taking care of the orphans and the widows, the hungry, the naked, the poor, and the spirit. Again, I think of Paul at the end of his letter in chapter 15. He says, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So again, Paul's giving some context to this teaching a little bit later in his letter there. Um, you know, remembering who he is talking to. And we talked about this last week with looking at Peter, how in Jerusalem you had a lot of conflict that was going on. You had oppression from the Romans coming in. You had exiles going out of Jerusalem because people were shunning one another. They were losing their businesses. Um, They were facing the persecution just because of their faith. And Paul is taking up this contribution that's coming from the other church to give to those who are poor in Jerusalem. As a pastor, as a shepherd, you oftentimes wear many different hats. Um, and I, safe to say, I have not had to wear the hat of a fundraiser very often in this church because we are a very giving church. We have a very healthy financial system. We have a healthy financial or a benevolence fund to where we're looking for ways to contribute to the needs of others. So it's, it's been a good thing to have. Um, you know, but when we think about how we contribute to the needs of our body, how we contribute to the needs of our community, obviously finances is one way. But there's so many other ways that we contribute. All of us contribute. Whether that's with our time, with our resources, with our funds. You know, and that's through this body. But again, we assist through other organizations throughout the year. We support different missions, missionaries, um, charitable organizations. But we're trying to understand how to advance the kingdom forward through our generosity. And it's, again, something that we do well here. And we're very blessed because of that. Because of the attitude that we have to contribute to one another. And again, this goes in line with hospitality. Hospitality we did talk about last week and the need to depend on others because travel, um, places to stay were either undesirable or non-existent in this culture. So it was very difficult to, to be hospitable or to find people to be hospitable with. And I found something very interesting this week. In the Greek, literally this phrase means to pursue strangers with love. 
Um, you know, and when we think about when it's translated with hospitality, we always think about housing. But in what ways can we pursue strangers with love? You know, opening up your home, obviously it's a wonderful demonstration of love to use what God has given us. But you think about the other resources that we have. We think about um, our time, our money, the possessions that we have, the things that God has provided to us. Do we use those things as a blessing or as a curse? You know, do we use these things to advance the kingdom of God? Or do we think, no, this is mine. I deserve this. I'm worthy of this. You know, how we view our possessions could sometimes help us to understand how we're viewing good and evil as well. How good or evil can be coming into our lives based on how we're treating what we have. Uh, you ever have... I, I can't remember what it was back when I was a kid, but especially for today, do you ever try to take screens away from a child? You might have a little hissy fit going on in your hands because they're so ingrained in that. It's, they're so connected to that. That's mine. This is my screen time. But when you take that away, how do they respond? If you think about the possessions that we have, if you think about the things that we hold on to so tightly in our life, if they were to be taken away, how do we respond? Is it ours or is it God's? And we talked about that with Abraham and Isaac this morning. Are we willing to sacrifice our firstborn son? Are we willing to sacrifice what seems so precious to us for the sake of God. If God is truly good, like we say that he is, will we walk in obedience to what he calls us to do? Again, when things are going great, it's easy to say yes. But when you're in the middle of that tribulation and when you have to be patient and wait on God, it gets a little bit tougher. Are we doing things for ourselves or for his kingdom and his glory? You know, we look at this list of exhortations, and again, with there being so many of them here, it can seem overwhelming to try and apply them all at once. We can look at some of these that we're doing poorly, and we can maybe just skip over those because I'm gonna focus on these that I'm doing really good in. I get those thoughts because I've been there. But if we understand that all of God's word is useful for instruction, for building up, we need to focus on all of these. Take baby steps for sure because we're still being changed into the image of Christ and we're still growing through our sanctifying process. You know, these exhortations for the church and for the believer are set in a way to improve our walk with the Lord, to draw us closer to him, to take us into the deeper life with him. Where we have to understand how all of these things that are listed as exhortations are good. And that we need to be doing these things as Christians. In our fellowship, if we were able to be able to do these things, the potential for the growth and maturity of this body is hard to estimate. 
But you think about this list. You think about the tribulations that you face. When evil rears its ugly head in your life, how do you respond? Are we clinging to what is good in terms of Christ? Are we giving in to the earthly pleasures? Are we giving in with an attitude of defeat, even though the victory has already been won? I want to close by just taking our hearts and minds back down to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These things listed are good. These are what we need to focus on. Evil is going to be around us. Evil is going to tempt us. It is going to try to get us to go astray. Put your heart and mind into the word of God and what he says within this passage. Let's pray. Father, as we dive into this topic of good and evil, I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to be mindful of what we do call good in our own hearts and minds. How at times we're trying to build ourselves up. How at times, Lord, we get distracted by the things of this earth and lose focus which should be on you. Father, in the same light, sometimes we get too focused on all of the evil. And Lord, it, it, can, it can take our hearts down and we can just be depressed and think things are hopeless. But Lord, I just pray that you would give us an eternal perspective to understand that the, back, the battle is already won and you have been victorious. Lord, our hope is in you and we are rejoicing in that. Our zeal is for that. So Lord, I just pray that your spirit would move in our lives this week that you would convict us of the evil that we might still be entertaining and that the Spirit would convict us and call us out in those areas so that our heart can be more solidified for you. I pray for the witness and testimony that we have as Christians, that we would be a church that is about the good, the good of one another, the good of bringing glory to your name. They would be clinging to you in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Lord, we praise you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.